is looking at you. Hello and welcome to the Here's Looking at You podcast, the podcast where we explore the intersections of gender, sexuality and performance. I'm Dr Ellen Wright, Senior Lecturer in Cinema and Television History at De Montfort University and I specialise in the representation of gender and sexuality in Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century. Today I'm talking with Nick Kilby. Nick is a performance artist who makes body-based work that examines often very challenging, broader political and philosophical ideas such as cults, blood sports and toxic masculinity. Nick's been performing for over a decade now and is currently doing a PhD at De Montfort University. This is where I first saw Nick, performing at the Borderlines conference last summer. The piece was entitled Buckle Up, The Filth. It was 11 hours long and I witnessed the climactic final 20 minutes. It left me literally speechless and was a very powerful, visceral, immersive performance made in response to rape revenge narratives and pulp narratives and to the Me Too movement. Nick cites influences as diverse as Italian London-based artist Franco B and performers such as Mouse and Suka Off to Helene Sixou and curatorial body Two Girls who've been mentoring Nick on recent projects. We had a very frank conversation that covered a range of topics from theoretical underpinnings to process, affect, consent, creative honesty and viscerality. Buckle up listeners, here's my conversation with Nick. So hello, this is Ellen Wright and you listen to the Here's Looking at You podcast and today I have Nick Kilby with me. Hello Nick, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Um, as a practitioner and an and artist, you could maybe talk a little bit about your work to our listeners so they can get an idea of what it is you do. Okay, um, I generally work within a live context, whether that liveness is in a building with people or online or like the I started off making work exclusively for uh, sort of galleries and clubs and making body performance work and stuff that would be like durational or or short but the shortness would then have like a hyper extended amount of like trauma within it so it's always been an like an an aggravation against the body whether that's over time or it's like the amount of input that is being received and sometimes it can be both so um uh, yeah i started work in 2009 um when i was doing contemporary performance practice undergraduate in like, leeds met um so yeah i worked with uh, my my key lecturers there was um a really wide variety of people a live artist called simon piazetsky um, contemporary theatre practitioners like Alex Kelly, who's from the same town as me, which is Sheffield, um, Oliver Bray, um, and then um, there was a lecturer in sort of club and festival work called Rebecca Kill, who um, envisioned that what you could do within a live environment to stop like riots happening in at Leeds Festival and stuff like that. So, like, ways of drawing out and beyond like just live music or context of stuff like I performed um, a really bad piece when I was first starting out <laughs> um, in a, a, like a 24-hour library that she programmed so um, it was about like 
finding space to make work rather than uh, making work for a particular space, I guess. Okay. So yeah, yeah. My work has changed quite a bit over time. Mm. Before, like, so initial, my initial work was made around sort of like boxing, so it was like high sports aesthetic. Whereas now it's sort of working with a collision of time periods, um, which is like, uh, I guess, mid 20th century up yep. to like 21st century. But yeah, the reason I make work is because like when I read philosophy, I don't see it as like a static text that's yep. on a page. I think it's something that needs to be um, enacted. People that I really vibe off seeing live uh, yep. were initially like people like Frank Hobby, um, Dominic Johnson and Ron Athey and like their philosophy generally falls within sort of like queer circles so like Foucault, yeah. uh, Bataille, um, especially in the case of Ron and um, yeah it's like more like sitting on a continuum of that so mm -hmm. like my work at the moment is probably dealing like with the more nihilistic and pro-extinctionist tract within um, philosophy so like Edelman's No Future and the Death Drive and then the stuff that's come after that, sort of like in defense of existence, which <laughs> like, it's like a Jose Munoz's Cruising Utopia. And then um, obviously because I'm being supervised by Alyssa, I'm really starting to enjoy Helene Sisu. Um, okay, okay, yeah. yeah. So a real broad range of stuff going on there yeah, in terms yeah. of influence. It could, good grief, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you mentioned before to me in uh, when you were talking about your work about um, working around uh, Jonestown and Waco, images of sort of violence and uh, particular moments of violence, sort of, yeah. sort of puncturing sort of moments. I wonder if maybe is there you know what is it about about that that really interests you? Well, it it was. The Jonestown and Waco stuff, like I did probably one of like the pieces that I'm up until last year, I was most happy with in terms of how well shaped it was yeah. and how like what, like what the input versus output was from it. The, I was most pleased with was called Invoking Jonestown, um, which was using the um, suicide tape of the Jonestown massacre as backdrop that was on loop for I think four hours um, oh, so that must have been incredibly I don't know I'd, have been, I'd come away from that quite traumatised you know yeah it, <laughs> I mean it's it's one of those things where like I ha I listened to it a lot in the run up to it yeah. so it just becomes like a, a background chant um, and there's also like really it's there's really key markers that you can use to if you put it on repeat, you can use it to pass time. So it's okay. like half an hour's gone because like the sound of a child crying or there's a bit where like a tape, the tape blips or um, weirdly, I think there's like a Delphonics tune at the end because yeah. like it, it just runs out, like the tape runs out. Yeah. Um, it came from this idea beyond like the blood sports, which was like dealing with the contradiction of the sculpted male in a state of violence so you have these two opposite things of like this discipline of the Queensbury rules and the the training of the muscles were to then hurt someone yeah. which is not a it, it's not a cohesive absolutely like discipline opposed to yeah not. yeah so, so it's like this sort of like this masculine crisis yeah um, 
heterosexual max, yeah, 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 max yeah. masculine crises. And then you've got like the contradiction of the spiritual leader leading people yeah. into this Ragnarok. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. this kind of like, because the, the um, like um, Waco is slightly less black and white in terms of yeah. it being um, who fired first, loads of like you can like ask questions about like like gun control because like they were they were legally allowed to own guns they just weren't allowed to convert them into fully automatic weapons and then you look then that becomes a question of capitalism where it's like well i bought the gun i can do what i want with it so it's like like if you're going to allow people to have guns which i personally am happy that i live in a country where we have a really strong gun control but if you're going to allow them to have them then then you can't really then Kill them for, yeah. for, for, I mean, yeah. making them more effective yeah. or... Yeah. yeah, it's a really, really problematic issue, isn't it, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Just, okay. yeah. Wow, okay. Um, so you're, you're, you're certainly not ducking complicated issues then. You're really sort of getting in there and sort of... Yeah, yeah. You know, dealing with some really complex stuff. You mentioned as well... Um, in, in stuff that I, I've read of yours around this idea of the gut punch for me personally performance work that I I enjoy or like vibe has a process that has a pinnacle point and then it can either end there or it can yeah. fade back yeah um, I'm not like a minimalist live art performance fan I can't sit in a room and watch somebody like like spin a dreidel for four hours, whilst, like <laughs> okay, you know, yeah, like yeah, like, yeah. like black market international, where like there's just loads of really high concept stuff happening over and over again. Yeah. For like, like yeah, I'm not that way inclined. Like it, and I like I wish I was because mm. I'd probably be much more interesting to speak to as a person. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I've always enjoyed like the really opaque, really like aesthetically considered pieces um, that probably I've seen more of like on a photographic level than I have in mm. real life. Stuff like Ron's work where there's like a real high process and that's like then backed up by a really strong aesthetic that's yeah. definitely theirs. And also like doing the PhD that I'm doing, which sort of like is now centering around Hollywood. Mm. Um, I've started looking back to people that I was really interested in, in when I first got started, like Paul McCarthy, Mike Kelly, and they all have like this like high, high production value yeah. that I guess that, that can only really be influenced by populist means and like mm. TV, cinema. Um, and I think that like to take that and then make it use it as a cultural comment on itself has value yeah, um, within a live art or performance art context. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit um, around what your intentions are with this sort of, with this action, yeah. you know, where we go with it, that sort of thing. Um, the PhD I was initially going to do changed really quickly from when I wrote the proposal and submitted it, which was August 2017 right. um, and then by the time I enrolled Me Too had happened or was happening um, right. so my initial proposal was looking at like ruptured and broken masculinities within 20th and 21st century moving image um, 
And then by the time that it actually came round, the Harvey Weinstein story had broken, and so had um, the Kevin Spacey one. And so, like, at that point, it was just, like, every day, it was just, like, more and more and more. It was, like, it was relentless. It was, like, an it? avalanche. It's like, I just stopped consuming media for a while because I'm, like, I can't watch this and not, like, worry that, like, I'm watching, like, a, like at worst, a rapist, yeah. like, yeah. do something that I might enjoy. Like, and, like, I'm, I'm, like, I am one of those people where, like, I won't watch something if I if I find the person like morally repugnant. So it, it was kind of like, if I'm gonna do this, if I'm gonna do a PhD, I wanted it to be something that was helping rather than okay. like, like yeah. um, I guess it was gonna be there in the background anyway in terms of what you were going to, to work on anyway. Yeah. You were surely gonna to have to yeah. engage with it, so you might as well bring that a bit more to the fore yeah. and just make sure yeah. you absolutely yeah or like so. or like I just end up being another one of those male academics that's like oh I'm, I'm doing a doctorate on Picasso but like let's not talk about like the fact that he <laughs> like he was yeah. an abuser of women yeah I mean it's worse it's worse than just not talking yeah. about them full stop yeah so and and also it was it's a really interesting time in terms of like how how voices are being disseminated and how we're talking about sexual agency for females. And, and like, the, what I found really interesting was um, men not only being implicated in sort of, like, I call it sexual harassment. I refuse to use the term sexual misconduct because, right. like, yeah. it's not... A, it's not like gross misconduct where you tell your boss to fuck <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, you're, you're actually harming a human being violently. That's not a, a, a job deal breaker. That's that's actually illegal. But also like people being pulled up for just actually being really bad at sex. It was kind of like the female locker room talk that we'd all wanted to, to hear. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, they were just really bad. They're just like really horrible human beings. Right? Um, and like, I was just sat on the sideline applauding loudly because like there isn't anything else I can do. Um, and now I think like we're slowly getting some kickback in terms of like the men's rights activists have now mm. finally started scraping together some hashtags to use back and yeah. um, like the I don't know if you've seen the furore over the Gillette advert yeah it's just how how can you be annoyed by that advert I think probably like the the first thing that I wrote with the PhD was um there's a body count tune called yeah. No Lives Matter. And yeah. the, the, the YouTube video, it starts off and it's just a, like a one minute rant. He basically starts by saying like, if I say black lives matter and you say all lives matter, then you're diluting the issue. Mm, yeah. So like by saying not all men, mm. like you're actually just diluting the issue. Why, yeah. why did you even need to say that? We, yeah. we know not all men. Yeah. It's like when Irish Republicans say fuck the English, they don't actually mean like northern working class coal miners, yeah. they mean like the like the London elite. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was like it, for me, it was like trying to work out like how I can talk about this a without muting yeah. female voices, yeah, um, and b not diluting the issue. Um, and the only way I've ever been able to do anything worthwhile is performance work. So um, yeah, that's I guess like. 
you pick your strategies in terms of yeah. how you're going to approach it. And yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't use Twitter. Um, I, I post on there, but it, it proxies off like my Instagram. Right. But I, I don't involve myself in it's that really whole toxic that, environment. That, 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 I mean, it's actually, I think a lot more people are there that shouldn't be because I think it's really mentally damaging for them as individuals. Yeah. Like you know, you see people go through like real crises off like input from strangers, yeah. and I'm like. No, I, I'm not. I, I don't have to engage with this. Like, no, no, <laughs> like, no, nor should you. Yeah, no. yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm not engaging with like incels or like, because like, what's the point? Yeah. Like, like all that all that happens is both sides become verbally violent. Um, but yeah, the Gillette Abbott thing was hilarious because you'd have like hipsters with beards saying, "I'm never buying a razor ever again." And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm like, well. Clearly, like this stamp, this political stance is the laziest thing that you've actually ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. Interesting times that we live in, certainly. Um, So, uh, your work seems really sort of corporeal and and focused on on bodies and bodies having politics writ large on them in some certain way. you seem to really engage with this idea of the abject and transgressing boundaries. I wonder if you could maybe talk a bit more about this, you know, these sorts of themes within your work. Yeah, I think I sort of started off um, using sort of blood and piercing work in, in my performances maybe two or three years after I started. Before mm-hmm. that, it was all sort of blunt force trauma-based stuff. So oh. like first performance I ever did um, as a sort of, performance action where I wasn't being directed, I wasn't acting, I wasn't yeah. singing in a band or something like that. Um, it was called 12 Rounds and it was literally shadow boxing for 12 rounds. Um, so like three minutes of shadow boxing, two minutes break and just go and go yeah. and go. Um, and that, that's probably one of the hardest performances I've ever had to do. Yeah. Because I, at that point, I'd never exercised <laughs> since, since since like since like childhood on a bike. So like probably the I guess the the thing is like the preparation is always harder than the the game. Yeah, it, I'm really interested in this actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know how you care for yourself. I mean, maybe that's a bit of a wanky term, but yeah. You know how you prepare your body. This is your instrument. This is your tool, and you're yeah. enacting harm on it. You know, how do you care for it, prepare it, care for it afterwards, nurture it, care for your mental health, you know, that sort of thing as well. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of preparation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And very personal question as well. Do you feel free to say, Alan? I mean, I mean, like the, I mean, the mental health things are really quick and easy one in that, like, like if I wasn't doing performance work, I would probably be really mentally ill. Yeah. Um. Um, having said that, like when people sort of like look at the the sort of actions where I am piercing myself and stuff like that, you're always gonna get the one guy that's like, oh, can you conflate this with self harm? And I'm like, no, like you can't. Like there's absolutely no way you can. Um, I mean, why would you? Mm. Um, I mean, like there's a difference between going on a diet and having an eating disorder. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. the same thing yeah. like just because you can see blood or the skin being pierced and it's my own decision to do that then that's not it's just not it's just a really bad 
correlation to make. What I mean in terms of prep, I'm not a rehearsal hound. Like I don't, I don't like run and drill it. I generally spend most of my time programming the sound for the space because I think sounds probably the most transformative thing you can do with a space when you've got like a limited budget and it's not typically a theatre space. It's the one thing you've got control over that and smell. Mm. Um, so the piece that you saw, uh, the filth. The preparation period was like 11 hours and I started drinking after the first hour of doing it. And it was a preparation of the space, as in the space that I was working in. Because office spaces are just really difficult to not be an office space. So it's like, well, you roll with it, but you just make it look veiled. Mm. Um, And you veil it with, you know, ephemera that you're processing. So Polaroids, automatic writing maps um, it was like trying to do this psycho and temporal geographical shift between stuff that I was writing in Leicester now and stuff that was going on in LA like four months back and then the this the like the hard-boiled noir character of like Mm. the 30s and 40s and it was trying to reframe all of those things into this compressed space um so yeah I just drank a lot and and wrote a lot and like in terms of prep I'm like not unapologetically like I I have um I have a regular drinking habit I'm not gonna like yeah I I work like beyond full-time um in a tattoo shop and like those days can be long and at the end of it like just need a drink okay (laughs) um and at the same time, like, I'm also having to write a PhD. So the act of drinking and writing at the same time, yeah. um, I can do pretty well. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, in terms of preparing for that performance, mm. I was like, I'll just show up and show you what I do on a night, which yeah. is like, like, read some philosophy, have an existential breakdown, and yeah. then try and write a PhD. Because, yeah. um, like, it's like one of those things where... Um, uh, I think it was Stanislav, Stanislav Grof, who's like a psychologist of sorts. Yeah. Um, he does more like transcendental stuff, but he yeah. talks about breakdowns being really important to the breakthrough. Oh gosh, right, okay, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah. And in the context of like the Me Too thing, I don't think we've seen enough men having the breakdowns to get to the breakthroughs. Okay, yeah. Um, it was really important for from like a, a female perspective, as in like our voices can now be heard. Yeah. Like, but men don't appear to have learned yeah. anything <laughs> other than there's probably more of a likelihood that you're going to get reported for being sexually inappropriate. Yeah. Not that it's a problem being sexually yeah. inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good grief. Okay. Yeah. I mean, th- th- that's really really interesting. That whole idea of as you sort of talk around the work, yeah, I can see how that played out in the in the performance and how that worked and you know yeah. and there's that thing there of you know you're 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 making yourself vulnerable only to have someone take that vulnerability and physically abuse you in a way that you know it's really interesting that it's a woman who's doing that mm. a really you know sort of you know a really sort of conventionally beautiful woman you know who yeah. turns up looking quite sexualized and you know and then she performs this violent act on you yeah. and so, you know and that that's a really interesting 
switch in terms of you know the, our understandings that we've sort of been talking around in these broader debates. There's some really interesting stuff going on there, and really interesting as well that you're sort of drawing in that um, the noir stuff as well. You know, because yeah. you know that I I I love the like the like noir pulp novels anyway. Yeah. I, um, um, the, but the work that I have problems with are um, James M. Kane and Mickey Spillane because they're so fucking sexist. Yeah. Whereas I find like Dashiell Hammett's actually, a, I find him more, yeah. there's more of an in yeah. there as a woman reader. So I find it really interesting that you're engaging with yeah. that. Like I love the term hard boiled because yeah. it's used to describe a female mm. in, in one of the Raymond Chandler books. Mm. And that's where it comes from. Yeah. So I. The fact the genre is named after like a description of a female that's like not that sexualized. No, like no, it's no. like because I mean like my thing with Raymond Chandler is that he's not really writing crime fiction. No, he's he's writing about places. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I wanted to do with the filth, yeah. which was like not write about a crime because there's not really any crime being committed no it's just happening all the time it's like a, an, an aura a feeling a pervasive it's like a like a almost like a gas in the air or something as you yeah. step in you get the feel within the space of that you were saying earlier about sort of smells and what have you like you could smell the whiskey when you walked in yeah and and there's a very distinct sort of set of associations I guess sort of personally that I might have with yeah. that but you know so you're automatically like I'm not sure about this space at all you know the, the reason why I spoke in it and well the reason the yeah, reason, look, yeah, the reason why I drank yeah. was because I, I knew that I needed to deliver text at the end of it yeah and I've never delivered text in my entire life as right. part of a performance because that's terrifying to me yeah like I can have like like I've been like whipped um continuously for three hours like um, by both like my my romantic partner and members of the audience on stage in a Bethnal Green working men's club. Oh my gosh! Yeah. That <laughs> right? was less terrifying than having to speak for fifteen yeah. minutes. Uh, I guess it's like what, like what, like I know, like, I know that I've got a rhino back. Right. I don't know how how the hell to deliver text. So. Right. Um, yeah, that was scary, so I needed to drink. Yeah. But because like I'm dealing with hard-boiled fiction, it's also a really good way of trying to write hard-boiled fiction. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what Raymond Chandler did. Mm. He, I mean, he, I find him a really interesting character in that he was maybe like 40, 50 before he wrote his first book. Yeah. And he, he was like, he's there getting absolutely piebald because like he's lost his job. Mm. And he's like, down at the bottom of the glass and he just picks up a pulp fiction yeah. book and goes, I can write I can this better this. than yeah. these fools. Yeah. And he does, he reinvents the genre. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, and in terms of like other stuff that was going on with with and around the film, mm. like using sort of like like populist technologies like Instagram um, to like post like automatic text and like photos that are relevant to like the, like some upcoming stuff I've got mm. um, and using like smartphones to like broadcast radios um, dispatch from like uh, police um, stations which like is wild like being in England you just assume you can't hear what the police are up to whereas yeah. in the States you can there's literally thousands of radio channels you can punch into right good grief so I didn't realise that until uh, you know I read some of your stuff that you know that was 
that's live. That, stuff, that, yeah, that was weird. live and happening then. So in, because we, the time frame we were on, it was actually really busy because it would be been the nighttime in LA, which is when... When all the action's yeah, happening, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I put, like, I listen to that um, at home um, when I'm writing. Cause, like, really? Yeah, because um, Catherine, my partner, she, she has kids, so like, she'll be in bed for like 10. So it can get kind of lonely right. writing. It, like, writing's a lonely process. It is, so, it, yeah. so just having that that sort of like reality punching where like you're, you're aware that like, like something else is happening in the world, but it's not like a linear narrative. Yeah. Like, like it's not the news. So you're like, you're not constantly like. Because almost uh, like you said earlier on, like a background noise yeah, almost. Yeah. yeah, so it's just like, it just allows for a pinning of, of reality that isn't this tiny writing bubble where like you're the loneliest person in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I've only really got one more question left to ask you, which is, wait, where are you going next with your work? My PhD now has been reframed fully as, before we were sort of like potentially looking at working with some archive materials from like male directors that were sort of like filming in the abstract, so looking at literally how they rupture the lens, um, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but then I'm like, I'm this sort of like contradiction of, like, do I actually want to just talk about men all the time? Right. Like, um, okay. which I don't. <laughs> I think it needs to be, I, like, as somebody that presents as a cisgender male, um, I think it, I probably need to spend some time talking about that because, like, like, it's what people are looking at when they see a performance. But right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am going to LA, actually going to LA for sort of, like, field recordings to use in a performance in June, which is going to be um, a tasting menu. Literally, we're going to be feeding people like, um, like what, like whilst the sort of narrative's being played out. Right. And I'm probably not going to be in the space because um, I'm wanting to play with this idea of male retraction, okay. like like removing like males from like the space and like and um, so like how how a man can sort of like critique misogyny without being present so like um i'm sort of working with a gastro chef who's also sardonic grin because like we right. have, we're like um sardonic grins their, their name's called uh ewan they're like my performance art mother like they right. they, they talk like they told me what to do from the ground up yeah um so like we're talking about like how how you can replicate the taste of a gunshot in someone's mouth or like a, so like working, oh, wow. working with different salts um, and like how you can give the impression of like lipstick traces being left and things like that. So, um, which I think we're going to use like a, a pork thing because then you get like that grease. The fatty sort yeah. of, wow. Um, but yeah, it's just about like, if you're gonna demasculinize the world, then your reaction has to be demasculinated. So it's like, okay, like, yeah. the, like if I'm presenting a narrative, then it shouldn't necessarily be like this sort of like rape revenge narrative because like yeah. it's that's a masculine response to a masculine. Yeah, yeah, I can see what yeah. problem. So yeah. it's like it's trying to like de-escalate that and make it something that's more feminine. And Helene Sue writes about that. It's like yeah. you can you can have females that write masculine and you can also have 
males are right in a feminine way and like it's working out like on a performance context like that's like how do you yeah, perform yeah yeah and yeah. it stop and it stops being about like suspension rigs at torture garden and becomes more about this thing of this like um do do we need bodies in space to view is that not an inherently masculine problem but then and then like do you then just remove it to the point that it's so abstracted that like you've just got a white cube <laughs> so it's it's finding this this middle ground where where you're not like I'm not making dude art and I'm not making <laughs> I, 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 I love the idea of dude art yeah I've been accused of being a dude artist before and like yeah. it, like it put me in like a two week funk <laughs> yeah I was this is the thing I mean all sorts of ways um, I find what you do really interesting because precisely you're you're trying to tease apart all this stuff of you know that's my perspective but how can I get behind that and I've actually seen that in that particular way because of this set of reasons and you're just constantly unpicking the layers of the onion you know yeah 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 because I mean the other solution is I just become like some like vigilante weirdo that that actually just intimidates males and females because like like as, as like people have said like I've, I haven't spoken to people that are like have been victims of like sexual assault mm-hmm. um, like the most frightening thing was when their friends dragged like them off me and then kicked the shit out of them mm-hmm. they they thought that like the aggressive reaction doesn't yeah. work yeah yeah absolutely absolutely thank you very much to Nick for making time to chat with me If you're interested in finding out more about Nick's work, a recent performance, The Biggest Sleep, A Hard-Boiled Dream Transmission, is a mesmeric 24-hour soundscape that was streamed live via YouTube in February and can be found at the link provided on the Here's Looking At You website. If you're interested in the Borderlines conference where I first encountered Nick's work, it's being held again at De Montfort University this coming June. It's an interdisciplinary conference and this year's topic is performing through the unknown. All that remains is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his tech input, to Nick for agreeing to chat and for being such engaging conversation, to the Shannon Riley Trio for allowing me use of their song Trouble as the Here's Looking At You theme tune, and to you for listening to the podcast. Feel free to offer your opinions or suggestions for potential interviewees on Twitter at Dr Smut or on the Here's Looking At You website where you can also sign yourself up to be updated when the latest podcast drops. Of course, we're also now available on iTunes. Yay! I'll be back soon for another conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality and performance in film, television and theatre. So, until next time, here's looking at you.